The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Now, considering that his self-portrait is the logo of this podcast, and that when I realized I needed to have a logo, there was really no question about what it would be. It had to be one of Vincent van Gogh's uh, self-portraits. It's kind of a surprise to me that I haven't gotten to an episode devoted just to van Gogh, but I think that time has come. Uh, Back in 2011, Stephen Nife and Gregory White Smith published an amazing biography. It's just called Van Gogh, The Life. And when I read it back in 2014, uh, it took me about a month to read it and probably a month or two to recover from it. It is just a devastating but also beautiful book. And I thought that what I would start with in reading from this book is their account of the two paintings that have come down to us by Van Gogh that are called The Starry Night. The first one is The Starry Night over the Rhone, and the second one is probably the more famous Starry Night, the one that he apparently saw from from the window of the asylum where he was a few years later. And... So let's just get down to it. This is the the first, the account of the first starry night, the starry night over the Rhone. It was an image as deeply embedded in the iconography of Vincent's imagination as sowers or sunflowers. The lovely evening stars express the care and love of God for us all, Anna Van Gogh had written to her teenage son. To Anna, stars represented God's promise, quote, to make light out of darkness and out of problems good things. Vincent's father fondly recalled his late-night walks, quote, under lovely starry skies, while his sister Lees saw in the stars all the people I hold dear very near urging me, be brave. Anderson's magical night skies had beguiled Vincent's childhood, while Heine's romantic starlight had guided his adolescence. The beckoning star of conscience had called him to Christianity, while Longfellow's tender star of love and dreams had consoled his long exile. In Ramsgate he looked into the starry night and saw both his family. He wrote, I thought of you all and of my own past years and of our home, and he saw his shame, In Amsterdam, on his evening walks along the riverbank, he, quote, heard God's voice under the stars. 
and he painted in words an elaborate picture of the comfort he felt in the blessed twilight when, quote, the stars alone do speak. And it's even more appropriate to devote an hour of a podcast, an hour of hearing words to someone like Van Gogh, because what he gave us wasn't just a gift in the visual arts, but also a literary gift, the three volumes of his letters that are uh, that are worth devoting your life to, you might say, since he did as much himself. So you're going to hear a lot of <clears throat> hear a lot of Van Gogh uh, in his letters here as well. In Paris, the city lights virtually extinguished the stars, but Vincent's imagination took flight on the miraculous fantasies of Jules Verne and the astronomical discoveries of Camille Flammarion, who mapped the night sky with new worlds and gave each speck of light its own new mystery, opening up a universe of infinite possibility. Or he could dream upon the starry nights he kept at his bedside in, in the books of Zola, Daudet, Loti, and especially Maupassant, author of Belle Amie. I love the night with a passion, Maupassant wrote in the summer of 1887. I love it as one loves one's country or one's mistress, with a deep, instinctive, invincible love. And the stars, the stars up there, the unknown stars thrown randomly into the immensity where they outline those bizarre figures which make one dream so much, which make us muse so deeply. In Arles, Vincent rediscovered the stars, and he wrote, At night the town disappears and everything is black, much blacker than in Paris. He walked the city streets, the river banks, the country roads, the orchards, even the open fields at night, drawn by both the opportunity to, quote, muse deeply and by the chance to go about unbothered. As much as the famous sun, the starry vault defined Vincent's experience of the Midi. Soon after arriving, he began to imagine painting it. I must have a starry night, he wrote to his brother Theo in early April. A starry sky is something I should try to do, he wrote to Bernard, just as in the daytime I am going to try to paint a green meadow spangled with dandelions. And on his trip to the sea in May, a walk along the shore at night brought this ambition to a fever pitch. It was beautiful, he wrote to his brother. The deep blue sky was flecked with clouds of a blue deeper than the fundamental blue of intense cobalt, and others of a clearer blue, like the blue whiteness of the Milky Way. In the blue depth the stars were sparkling greenish yellow white pink more brilliant more emeralds lapis lazuli rubies and sapphires and this book is filled and i hope someday to get to those chapters where van gogh just discusses his theory of colors and obsesses about other people's theory of colors and just goes on and on and on <coughs> excuse me about colors on that dark shore, where both the inky water and the glittering sky invited reflection, Vincent's ambition to combine with Gauguin, still more a dream than a plan, merged with his view of the night sky. 
just as he saw the ghosts of his past in, in the dunes and houses of St. Marie's, he saw his future in the stars over the Mediterranean. He wrote, To look at the stars always makes me dream, as simply as I dream over the black dots of a map. He returned to Arles with the image burning in his imagination. When shall I ever get round to doing the starry sky, he wondered in mid-June, that picture which is always in my mind. Through all the trials of the summer, the up-and-down negotiations with Gauguin, and whether or not he would come to visit and live with Vincent, uh, the death of his uncle sent, he saw in the nightly spectacle overhead, not just a map to an impossibly distant world, where life for painters might be easier, but the promise of a future almost within reach. He wrote, Hope is in the stars, but let's not forget that this earth is a planet too, and consequently a star. We are living, he says, on a star. In early September, he considered returning to the seashore to confirm and record the image in his head. I absolutely want to paint a starry sky, he told his sister, Will. With a vehemence that betrayed months of looking and planning, he explained to her how the night was, quote, more richly colored than the day, having hues of the most intense violets, blues, and greens. And he instructed her in the rainbow of starlight, saying, if only you pay attention, you will see that certain stars are citron yellow, others have a pink glow or a green-blue and forget-me-not brilliance. To fix, his, to fix this vision in the firmament of symbolist imagery, he evoked the poetry of, guess what? He evoked the poetry of Walt Whitman, whose embracing summons to a future filled with love and sex and work and friendship quote, under the great starlit vault of heaven, perfectly matched the image that Vincent saw when he stared and squinted into the night sky. And just in these two pages that I've read so far, uh, he has mentioned the, um, he has mentioned his desire to do a starry sky uh, twice in letters to his brother, once to another friend, and again to his sister. Um, you can see just right there how valuable his letters are. Uh, we don't have letters or uh, correspondence for very many people uh, talking about planning to do great works of art, but we have it with Vincent van Gogh. And these are only the ones that uh, are being quoted in the biography. There are probably many more. Uh, the letters are just wonderful things to, to have, almost as good as the paintings. And it says, he practiced this vision again and again, squinting into the night sky throughout the early summer and fall. He completed a portrait of Eugène Bauch in early September by dabbing a constellation of multicolored sparkling stars onto the painting's deep blue background. And at the same time, he gave this portrait of Eugène Bauch its new title, The Poet, a designation that connected Bach's star-lighted visage with the new Petrarch of the Midi, Gauguin. And of course, the Eugene Bach painting um, is another spectacular thing uh, that uh, is mentioned in this biography for a few pages, where you have a portrait of someone, and rather than the wall or a bookcase or 
uh, a landscape behind them. Uh, what you have are stars. But just painting the stars was not enough. Vincent longed to paint under the stars. And he writes, the problem of painting night scenes and effects on the spot, and actually by night, interests me enormously, he wrote. <coughs> to satisfy that yen, he dragged his equipment to the Place du Forum and painted his nocturnal view of the cafe terrace with its gaslit awning and its plunging streetscape, quote, stretching away under a blue sky spangled with stars. That's the famous uh, cafe terrace. Uh, painting as well. Unlike the seemingly random dots of the Bach portrait, the wedge of night sky in the cafe terrace and the Place du Forum reveals a universe of stars and planets arranged in solar systems of color. Here, he boasted, you have a night picture without any black in it, done with nothing but beautiful blue and violet and green and citron yellow color. He compared it to a description of Maupassant's Belle Amie, another touchstone of his dream for the Midi. He laid plans to paint a series of starry night paintings to rival the sunflower paintings of summer, including a plowed field under the night sky, and especially the yellow house at night, the home to all of his dreams. And those yellow house paintings are wonderful as well. Some day or other you shall have a picture of the little house itself, he promised Theo, with the window lit up and a starry sky. When his similar attempt to depict Christ under a starry sky failed so miserably in late September, Vincent shouldered his equipment in the middle of the night and sought his subject directly under the stars. He picked a spot only a few blocks away on a seawall overlooking the river Rhone. To provide light, he set his easel under one of the gas lamps that lined the wall along the river bank. Experience had shown him that its golden light was inadequate, even deceptive. And he wrote, In the dark I may mistake a blue for a green, a blue lilac for a pink lilac, for you cannot rightly distinguish the quality of a hue. But the immediacy of the image mattered more to him than accuracy. And there was no other way to avoid, quote, the poor, sallow, whitish light of conventional night scenes. Once set up, he turned his gaze south, looking downriver at the dark town. It stretched out along the great bend of the Rhone, curving and receding left to right, visible only by its necklace of gas lamps and its jagged, dark profile on the horizon the tower of the Carmelite convent at one side, the dome of St. Trophime in the middle, the spires of St. Pierre on the opposite shore. Only a handful of windows are lighted. Boats are moored in the black water below him. It is late. And you can tell just from what I've been reading, at least I, I hope you can, um, how, how well Stephen Neife and Gregory Whitesmith have written this biography of Van Gogh. The writing is marvelous to go along with its subject. But when he looked up, he saw a different sky than he had seen three months before on another shore. Or rather, he saw it with different eyes. In June, his rocketing dreams for the combination with Gauguin had found inspiration in Daudet-inspired fantasies of train trips 
to distant stars and galaxies of better worlds. Now, as the prospect of Gauguin's coming receded like the sunset, Vincent searched the night sky for an older, deeper consolation. I have a terrible need of, shall I say the word, religion, he wrote, shuddering at the confession. Then I go out at night to paint the stars. And I almost read in this episode um, scenes from Van Gogh's early life where he attempted, and well, he did, he did become a preacher of a sort in the Borinage in the mining region of Belgium and the horrible time he had of it there. Um, uh, I won't go into it, but I almost read that part and that's uh, the part in his life, I believe, where he uh, gave up practicing religion in any way and devoted himself to, you might say, the religion of painting, the religion of art. And um, but perhaps another time I will get there. But so for him to say here, I have a terrible need of, shall I say the word religion, uh, is a big deal. But uh, he still has the same conclusion. Instead of religion, I go out at night to paint the stars. Instead of conventional religion, you might say, I go out and paint the stars. As best he could, he deployed the palette of greens and blues with citron highlights that he had used in the failed picture of Gethsemane colors he had long connected to Christ, from Schaeffer's Christus Consolator to Delacroix's Bark, and to those of his own painting, from the potato eaters to the poet's garden, that portrayed, quote, a different world from ours. He plunged the town itself into the blackest blue that he could contrive, and to make it even darker, he painted the string of street lamps in bursts of harsh gold. The ultimate subject may have been above him, but the river, too, drew his dreamy eye. The play of light on water, on rivers, on ponds or puddles, had always led Vincent to deep meditation on the mysteries of the infinite. Looking at the receding line of lanterns, he tracked their, quote, ruthless reflections in the choppy river water with hundreds of short, brooding strokes. And for the small jetty at his feet, where the black boats bobbed in silence, he used yellow-green to show the reach of his own lantern, but he unsettled the foreground with highlights of mauve, a red-blue mix that added a mysterious other light. In the sky, he started by dutifully laying out the stars of the Ursa Major constellation in the southern quadrant at the center of his big canvas, the seven stars of the Big Dipper most prominent of all. But, but the longer he looked, the more he saw and the more his brush wandered. He saw dots and smudges, perfect circles and misshapen fragments. He imagined some stars in the palest shades of pink and green, sparkling like hued gems in the dark void. He compared himself to a jeweler arranging precious stones, quote, in order to enhance their value. To some, he added coronas of radiating strokes, like flower petals or distant fireworks, creating for each a citron aura like the nimbus that circled the head of Delacroix's Christ. He rendered the Milky Way with the lightest touch of his brush, an impossible blush of pale blue on, cobalt, on the cobalt vastness. With exquisite care, he laid the brushstrokes on the night sky 
in a rhythm of broad dashes, quote, firm and interwoven with feeling. Um, this makes me want to, I mean, this is what Van Gogh does for poets and writers. They make them write better. And uh, I would love to one day devote a sequence of poems to Van Gogh and just see what happens. Um, if he could achieve with his gentle brush and harmonious color the same consolation as the unapproachable image of Christ, if he could capture and paint, quote, the feeling of the stars and the infinite high and clear above you, perhaps his loneliness might end, or at least be comforted. The never-dark-night cafe provided its own kind of consolation, of course, to those like him, quote, without native land or family. But for Vincent, the transient balms of absinthe and gaslight could never suffice. Nor could he accept his own furtive argument that, quote, the arts, like everything else, are only dreams, that one's self is nothing at all. Inevitably, his eyes returned to the starry night sky, where he saw another, truer, deeper consummation, however distant. With his plans for the Yellow House and for Gauguin, his friend coming to visit, slipping towards failure, his yearning for that future poured onto the canvas as he labored more tenderly than ever before to express a transcendent truth through color and brush stroke. To capture the one human emotion shut out of the Café de la Guerre, the most important one, the hope, no matter how faint or how far, of redemption. Is this all, he asks despairingly, or is there more besides? At the end, perhaps back in the studio, he added to the painting a shadowy couple standing on the shore, lovers arm in arm, wandered in from a distant star. And those couples are people that you see all throughout Van Gogh's work, especially late in life. Um, and just as I was about to say it, uh, the cypress trees, you see them wandering around the cypress trees. Van Gogh is always painting uh, sort of a woman off in the woods by herself um, that he would like to approach, you might say, or the, the happy couple under the night sky. He says, is this all or is there more besides? Is it just, will I, well, is this all I will ever have is painting the scene and not living it with somebody else or living something so fully that, um, uh, that I don't need to paint it at all. And I don't know if I said this in the beginning, that it took me a month to read this book and a month to recover from it. Uh, it pretty well did destroy me uh, emotionally for a while. And I'm beginning, to I'm beginning to be reminded of just why that was. Um, because, of course, uh, for him and for his life, even though Gauguin did end up coming down to the Yellow House, uh, as we know, um, it didn't quite work out as he had planned. Some ideal meeting he had in mind of artists, uh, two artists living together, and instead it ends up with him uh, lopping off his ear. And um, so we go to the next Starry Night, uh, the one that he painted while uh, while in the asylum. And this is what it says about that painting. Let's see. 
Vincent's search to express the serenity he felt led him inevitably to this familiar image. He was proud of the nightscape over the Rhone that he had painted in September of the previous year, that was in 1888, on the eve of Gauguin's arrival. Theo, his brother, had liked it too, and only a week after his brother complimented that painting in late May, Vincent proposed submitting it to the independent review show in September, quote, in order not to exhibit anything too mad, if not for the confinements of the Arl Hospital, daylight only releases windowless isolation cells, bands on paints and brushes, he undoubtedly would have returned to the subject sooner. At St. Paul, the constraints had hardly loosened. He still could not venture out after dark to paint, as he preferred, directly under the stars. Brushes and paints remained in his studio downstairs, to which he had access only during the day. To paint a starry night, then, he could only watch from behind the bars of his bedroom window as the asylum lights blinked off and the sky darkened and the stars assembled. He may have made drawings and tested other deeper inventions while staring at the small quadrant of the eastern sky that filled his little window. And over the course of the night he saw a waning moon and the constellation Aries lying low in the east, just above the hilltops, its four bright stellar points arrayed in a rough arc over the faint blush of the Milky Way. In the pre-dawn hours, Venus, the morning star, appeared prominently on the horizon, bright and white, a perfect companion to an early wakening or a sleepless night, which we imagine Van Gogh had his share of both. Uh, he stared and stared at the light they each shone, and the sparkling darkness all around them. All this and more made its way onto Vincent's canvas in the daylight hours. He had to wait to do it. To ground his celestial vision, he added a sleeping village in the middle distance. Earlier in June, he had taken a day trip to the, into the town of Saint-Rémy, about a mile downhill from the asylum gates. On this visit, or on one of his other forays into the hills overlooking the town, he had made a careful sketch of the popular mountain resort, with its dense warren of medieval streets, girdled by broad modern boulevards, famous birthplace of Nostradamus, astrologer and prophet, and still a watering hole for passing luminaries like Frédéric Mistral and Edmond de Goncourt. For his painting, however, Vincent reduced the bustling town of 6,000 to a sleepy village of no more than a few hundred souls, no bigger than Zundert or Helvort. The 12th century church of St. Martin, which dominated the town with its fearsomely spiked stone bell tower, instead became a simple country chapel with a needle-like spire that barely pierced the horizon. Finally, he moved the town from the valley floor north of the asylum and instead placed it to the east, directly between his bedroom window and the familiar serrated line of the Alpils, a spot from which it, too, could witness the celestial spectacle about to begin. And so with all these elements, cypress tree, townscape, hills, horizon, all secured in his imagination, 
Vincent's brush launched into the sky. Unconstrained by sketches, unschooled by a subject in front of him, unbounded by perspective frame, unbiased by ardor, his eye was free to meditate on the light, the fathomless, ever-comforting light he always saw in the sky. Let me read that sentence again. Um, and in the book, it, uh, this sentence sits underneath uh, an ink sketch of, uh, that Van Gogh made of the starry sky. With all these elements, cypress tree, townscape, hills, horizon, all secured in his imagination, Vincent's brush launched into the sky. Unconstrained by sketches, unschooled by a subject in front of him, unbounded by perspective frame, unbiased by ardor, his eye was free to meditate on the light, the fathomless, ever-comforting light he always saw in the night sky. That's wonderful. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, he saw that light refracted, curved, magnified, and scattered through all the prisms of his past, from Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales to Jules Verne's journeys, from symbolist poetry to astronomical discoveries. The hero of his youth, Charles Dickens, had written of, quote, a whole world with all its greatness and littleness visible in a twinkling star. And the hero of his age, Emile Zola, described the night of the sky of a summer night as, quote, powdered with the glittering dust of almost invisible stars. And here they quote, here's a long quotation from Zola. Behind these thousands of stars, thousands more were appearing. And so it went on ceaselessly in the infinite depths of the sky. It was a continuous blossoming, a showering of sparks from fanned embers, innumerable worlds glowing with the calm fire of gems. The Milky Way was whitening already, flinging wide its tiny suns, so countless and so distant, they seem like a sash of light thrown over the roundness of the firmament. End quote. Thank you, Zola. And in his reading and in his thinking and his seeing, Vincent had long looked past the real night sky, the tiny static specks of sallow light of the night paintings that he detested, in search of something truer to the vision of limitless possibility and inextinguishable light, the ultimate serenity that he found in Zola's blossoming, showering, glittering night. To record this vision, he summoned his new palette of violet and ochre, the unstudied curves of his mountaintops, the swirling spirals of his cypress branches, and the odd wandering brush wandering, not wandering, the odd wandering brushstroke with which he could, quote, add whatever serenity and happiness he felt. Guided only by, quote, feeling and instinct, like the ancient Egyptians, he painted a night sky unlike any the world had ever seen with ordinary eyes. A kaleidoscope of pulsating beacons, whirlpools of stars, radiant clouds, and a moon that shone as brightly as any sun, a fireworks of cosmic light and energy, visible only in Vincent's head. And of course, that is the gift he gave us. It's only visible in his head, but that is the sadness and the torment of his life, that it was only visible 
in his head. And I suppose it's even more valuable to read a passage like this because uh, a painter today would need to go somewhere very, very, very remote indeed to uh, even get an impression of what a starry sky might be, even if they were just going to return and create something that only emerged from their own head. Uh, we have very little idea of what the night sky actually used to look like anymore with all of our light pollution. But anyhow, it says, in the century after this starry night was painted, scientists would discover that, quote, latent epileptic fits resembled the fireworks of electrical impulses in the brain. William James called them nerve storms or explosions of abnormal neural discharges that could be triggered by just a few epileptic neurons in a brain made up of billions of neurons. These cascading surges of errant sparks often originated in, or took their heaviest toll on, the most sensitive areas of the brain, especially the temporal lobe and the limbic system, the seats of perception, attention, comprehension, personality, expression, cognition, emotion, and memory. The bombardment of an epileptic shower could shake any of these foundations of consciousness and identity. The brain could weather these storms, researchers discovered, but it could never fully recover from them. Each attack lowered the threshold for the next attack and permanently altered the functions that had been shaken. The combination of fear, the fear of another attack, and the underlying neurological changes in the affected area of the brain created a pattern of behavior, a syndrome, associated with what came to be known as, quote, temporal lobe epilepsy. Seizures were usually followed by periods of extreme passivity, an apathetic haze in which the victims showed little interest in the outside world or in their own circumstances. Sexual appetite waned, and to the untutored eye, and even to the victim, this passivity was mistaken for serenity. Gradually, however, apathy yielded to its opposite, a state of heightened excitability. Obsessively alert to the outside world, the victim would be seized by intense feelings, deepened emotions, whether elation and euphoria or depression and paranoia, and towering enthusiasms. This state of heightened reality, easily exacerbated by alcohol, led in many cases to cosmic visions and to religious raptures. You can see where this is going. And as the mind grew increasingly excited, irritability, impulsiveness, and aggressiveness, the hallmarks of latent epilepsy, reappeared. Emotional disturbances led inexorably to violent ones, the paroxysmic of violence, of a seizure, and the cycle would begin again. As for the ultimate cause, the or origin of dysfunctional epileptic neurons in the brain, the answer remained a mystery, and some scientists, even as early as Vincent's time, thought that brain injuries, tumors, or birth defects might be responsible. Heredity continued to be suspected. Research did not succeed. Research did succeed in identifying the immediate causes of attacks, the triggers that could push a sufferer from passivity to euphoria, to paranoia, to agitation, to violent seizure, and sometimes in the space of one year, sometimes within a month, sometimes within the, a day of the previous attack. Stress, 
alcohol, poor diet, vitamin deficiencies, emotional shocks, all could increase the brain's susceptibility to electrical storms. The intense enthusiasms that filled the epileptic mind could also paralyze it with, with ideas that it fixated on, parasitic ideas that bored into a victim's consciousness to the exclusion of all else, distorting perception and memory and alienating those around him to the point where friction and aggravation, the precursors of an attack, became inevitable. And any overstimulation of the affected areas of the brain, that is, disruptions of perception, cognition, or emotion, could open a pathway for bolts of neuronal lightning. Seizures could be triggered by visual stimuli as varied as sunlight, dappling through leaves, the fluttering of eyelids, even images summoned up by passages in a book, vivid dreams, unexpected events, rejection by loved ones, derogation by strangers, ambushes of memory, eruptions of intense meaningfulness, quote, intense meaningfulness, whether from religious thought or metaphysical musings, any or all of these could provoke the troubled brain to another attack. And the section just ends with the sentence, Vincent's euphoric image of a swirling, unhinged cosmos signaled that his defenses had been breached. And you can make of that what you will. It sounds convincing enough to me. Um, and the thing that I take away from it actually reminds me of uh, a series called The Power of Art that Simon Shama did a few years ago. And perhaps the book version is different, but the television version that he did of Van Gogh ended with uh, Andy Serkis as Van Gogh um, eating paint and uh, looking bittersweet and forlorn and you feel for the guy and then... Uh, there's the upswell at the end, and I think Simon Shama is walking in the south of France. And you're made to feel that uh, Vincent is redeemed somehow. You're made to feel happy about all of this somehow. And that always felt like a cheat to me. And I think that, um, I think it is a cheat. I think uh, one of the reasons that this biography, one of the reasons that um, my own episodes on stubbornness and loneliness and jealousy have been what they are is because uh, of the example of Van Gogh's life and what it has taught me and how it doesn't need to destroy me anymore, but I still do need to take the lessons from it. That, um, as he said, is this all there is? Well, yes, sometimes there is. Um, would he have been better off with this condition? Um, but without the ability to paint or write the letters that he did or try to preach. Um, we just don't know uh, the, the amount of suffering that one person, the amount of suffering and isolation and rejection and all the rest that one person can take. Um, seems to be pretty enormous. And I think uh, the least we can do here is to uh, see what Van Gogh was able to do with it himself and to draw our own lessons from that day by day ourselves.
Well, if we're doing Van Gogh's Starry Night, it seems that the best way to round out this first episode, uh, I hope to be of many episodes, about Van Gogh and his art and his life, it seems the best way to end the first of these would be with uh, the other symbol, the other uh, image that we associate with him. If it isn't a starry night, it is almost certainly the sunflower. And this is what... Let me get their names right again. This is what Stephen Nife and Gregory Whitesmith have to say about the sunflower. The petals came last. With a full brush and a turn of the wrist, he applied the twisting yellow and orange strokes, one at a time, one after the other. The pan-sized composite flowers, with their sunburst aureoles of ray florets and densely packed centers of multi-hued disc florets, opened the floodgates of Vincent's fevered imagination and manic brush. At their last blooming, a year before in Paris, he had brooded obsessively over the details of these giant flowers listing on their rigid stalks. But now in Arles, on the eve of Gauguin's arrival, he saw only extravagant form and brilliant color. Against a background of the most intense turquoise, a hue pitched perfectly between acid green and sublime blue. And remember what I said before about uh, just how much we could find, probably a little pamphlet uh, in this book or in other books about Van Gogh, dealing with his theories of color and how closely he studied color and studied other people's theories of color. Uh, Van Gogh sketched three huge flower heads in a squall of tiny strokes, he transformed their spiral disks into color wheels of complementaries, dashes of lavender for the yellow petals, cobalt for the orange. A slashing sortie draped a great floppy leaf over a, a lime green vase, glazed and glistening in the bright light of his new studio. Another sortie, another leaf, he jabbed at the tabletop in a blaze of reds and oranges and then polished it with glancing strokes in every color on his palette. He painted the way he talked, thrust and parry, assault and retreat. Barrages of brushwork swept across the canvas again and again, like summer storms. Furious exhortations of paint, as intense as fireworks, were followed by wary, ruminating reassessments as he recoiled from the image, arms folded, plotting his next volley. And then, just as suddenly, his brush would dart to his palette, dabbing and stirring, dabbing and stirring, searching for a new color. Then the rush to the canvas, bursting with new arguments and fresh fervor. The, uh, let's see, he became a fanatic as soon as he touched a brush, recalled one friend and, you would say, critic. A canvas needs to be seduced, but Van Gogh, he, he raped it. Well, that's one way of putting it. Um, another witness described how Vincent attacked the canvas with both paint and words, muttering and sputtering, coaxing and cajoling, 
bullying and railing, giving voice to his arguments, even as his hand gave them form, texture, and color. And I think of that pianist whose name escapes me because I need to recall it while recording something, um, who, a Canadian pianist who sort of became a recluse later in his life, who couldn't help but mutter and sort of sing to himself as he played the piano and how uh, recording engineers and how the pianist himself had to sort of invent new ways to only capture the music he was playing and not the muttering and the singing and they were able to do this fairly well. Um, in both debates, uh, Vincent thrived on confrontation. If critics like Kahn and painters like McKnight thought his colors too bright, he made them brighter. His wild flowers demanded a yellower yellow than the one in his tubes, a cruder, sunnier, quote, savage yellow. And he searched his palette for just the right touch of green to make it shriek, or a deep complementary to make it pop. His goal, he said, was to, quote, arrange the colors in a way that makes them vibrate. And if Theo criticized his work, if his own brother criticized his work as too hasty and too, quote, haggard, and if even his brother urged him to slow down, Vincent painted even faster, impossibly fast. He compared his painting style to the eating style of a local paisan, ravenously slurping bouillabaisse, and claimed that the faster he worked, the better were the results. Describing himself as a man, quote, driven by a certain mental voracity, he despaired of, quote, ever painting pictures that are peaceful and quietly worked out. And he lamented, it will always be headlong. And again, it's uh, um, perhaps that's a tragedy. <laughs> it will always be headlong. But at the same time, uh, at least he had the virtue of knowing himself of knowing just what he needed to do. But of course, it never was. Just as his campaigns of persuasion unfolded over many letters, and his letters sometimes went through multiple drafts, his paintings often gestated for weeks or months or even years before brush touched the canvas. The image of a vase of sunflowers had been in his head since at least a year earlier, when he saw a bouquet of the huge flowers in the window of a Paris restaurant near Theo's gallery. At the time, he had painted a series of individual blossoms arranged in a morbid narrative and depicted in the descriptive, backward-looking draftsman style of The Hague. In the years since, however, Vincent had discovered the New Testament of Cloisonnism, and the image of sunflowers in his head took new form and new order. He practiced this new vision on a jug of early blooming wildflowers in May, and then rehearsed it again in June with the boats on the beach at Saint-Marie, so pretty in shape and color that they make one think of flowers, he said. All summer, as he raced from field to field in search of imagery and hunted from brothel to brothel for models, this vision of simple flowers haunted him. I reproach myself, he said, for not painting flowers here, he wrote in early August. 
Under the blue sky, the orange, yellow, and red splashes of flowers take on an amazing brilliance, and in the limpid air they look somehow happier, more lovely than in the north. Remember, he's in the south of France at this point in his life. And when the first sunflowers appeared soon thereafter, the plan sprang back to life, and he announced to Emile Bernard, I am thinking of decorating my studio with half a dozen pictures of sunflowers. To, the, to a symbolist like Emile Bernard, Vincent promised, quote, effects like those of stained glass windows in a Gothic church. And to his dealer brother Theo, he promised, quote, a symphony in blue and yellow that would rival Monet's Antibes paintings, as well as a huge decorative scheme grown to a dozen panels to match the ambitious projects of Seurat. Vincent himself was naturally drawn to the gawky, late-starting flowers that now dotted gardens everywhere in Arles, no doubt seeing his own story in their glorious blooming, their mad bounty, and their sad decay. And I will read that sentence again, because that is wonderful. Um, Vincent himself was naturally drawn to the gawky, late-starting flowers that now dotted gardens everywhere in Arles, no doubt seeing his own story in their glorious blooming, their mad bounty, and their sad decay. But his most important audience was the painter that he expected to walk in the door of the yellow house any day. Now that I hope to live with a Gauguin, he said, in a studio of our own, I want to make decorations for the studio. Nothing but large sunflowers. But first he had to work them out. Earlier in his career, he had said, great things do not just happen by impulse, but are a succession of small things linked together. He spent long days and sleepless nights planning the color, quote, program that would both differentiate and unite so many images. He described it to Bernard as, quote, a decoration in which the raw or broken chrome yellows will blaze forth on various backgrounds, from the palest malachite green to royal blue. And he plotted the variables until his head spun in a, quote, damnably difficult mess of combinations. Having heard the criticism that Monet's Antibes paintings, for all their luscious atmosphere, nevertheless suffered from a total lack of construction, he pledged himself to the logical composition of Cezanne and the reasoned color of Dutch masters like Vermeer. And like these and other, quote, scientific painters, he claimed, he had prepared for his series of sunflower paintings with hours of careful calculations. Calculations of everything from the size and orientation of each canvas to its exact color scheme and the amount of paint it would consume, color by color. Only through this kind of elaborate advanced planning, with his mind, quote, strained to the utmost, could he hope to produce, quote, a quick succession of canvases quickly executed. But no matter how much preparation he did, it never seemed enough. And he wrote to Bernard once, alas, alas, the most beautiful paintings are those which you dream about when you lie in bed smoking a pipe, but which you never paint. 
Um, by the time all of Vincent's calculations burst onto canvas in late August, the giant heliotropes were the last blooms left in the gardens and already beginning to fade. But of course, with the new gospel of exaggeration animating his palette and his brush, he barely needed to look at the vase of wilted sunflowers sitting on the table in the yellow house. He may have skipped altogether the preliminary charcoal drawing that had always guided him in the past and gone straight to paint. Roughing in just enough of the composition, the vase, a few flowers, and the tabletop horizon, he locked into the Clausewinist program and complementary logarithms that had kept him awake at night. And before long, he was working on three paintings simultaneously, two with three flowers apiece, and one with at least a dozen huge blossoms in various states of eclipse. It was less an orderly progression than a rhetorical outburst. And he says, I am working at it every morning from sunrise on. He's writing to his brother. I am working at it every morning from sunrise on, for the flowers fade so soon, and the thing is to do the whole in one rush. Inevitably, once his brush touched canvas, all of Vincent's nights of careful planning collided with the impetuous rush of paint. For a man whose enthusiasms knew neither patience nor caution, the infinite permutations of color and stroke proved an irresistible lure to improvisation, a spontaneous <coughs> excuse me, a spontaneous eccentricity of line, a serendipitous clash of color, an ardor of impasto, a lyrical flight of brushwork. Every errancy, accident, or inspiration triggered a new round of calculations as the weeks of planning wrestled with his brush in a furious dialectic of purpose and effect. He compared his working sessions to, quote, a fencing match, pitting intensity of thought against tranquility of touch. Vincent understood this contest well, and at different times, championed both its contestants. One day he would insist on the necessity of speed, citing both the best-selling Monet and the immortal Delacroix. But when Theo questioned his consumption of paint or the hasty, unpredictable results, he insisted that every stroke and color choice had actually been determined beforehand, citing Monticelli, quote, the logical colorist able to pursue the most complicated calculations, subdivided according to the scales of tones that he was balancing." End quote. Other times he would blame the wild winds of the mistral for his turbulent brushwork, comparing him help himself to Cezanne, who also had to tame, quote, a reeling easel. But the real storm that shook Vincent's easel and trembled his hand was the one inside his head. Indeed, he worked best under the pressure of exigency, whether a tempest on the beach, at Schweinwegen, the raging mistral of the crow, or the damning voices of the past. Only friction between himself and the elements, between hope and experience, between elaborate planning and evangelical zeal, between the theories and the mandates to simplify 
and his own obsessive need to persuade, only friction could induce the, quote, feverish state of creativity from which, he believed, all his best work emerged. I count on the exaltation that comes to me at certain moments, he wrote, and then I let myself run on extravagances. He described the, quote, terrible lucidity that came over him in such moments, saying, when nature is so beautiful, I am not conscious of myself anymore. And the picture comes to me as in a dream. He claimed as his model Japanese artists with their lightning execution and absolute sureness of touch, as simple as breathing, he said. He invoked Monticelli, too, defending in a mad or drunken frenzy, and he said, They call a painter mad if he sees with his eyes other than theirs, and he dared any drunkard to attempt either man's acrobatic feats of color. And you can tell by, by the last few paragraphs I've read that we are on page 618 of a very long book, talking about uh, the pressures that he has felt from the beginning of his, not just his painting career, but his career as a preacher, or just as a son or a brother. Um, and you can see how knowledgeable he is, not just of his own contemporaries, but of those uh, French and other painters from the last 50 or so years. And finally, going all the way back um, to the uh, Italian Renaissance, he was in the thick of it uh, as best as he possibly could be with the kind of temperament that he had. Um, but Vincent had always preached the paradox of calm in the storm, joy in sorrow, comfort in pain. And he had already exalted his own inner turmoil by committing to memory a famous tribute to Delacroix, which said, Thus died, almost smiling, a painter of a noble race who had a sun in his head and a thunderstorm in his heart. That's worth reading again. That's not a bad thing to have on your tombstone or on the lips of people who remember you. Uh, thus died, almost smiling, a painter of a noble race who had a sun in his head and a thunderstorm in his heart. Bystanders like Millier, who gaped at Vincent's assault on the canvas or mocked the manic theater of his dialogue with images, saw exactly the same exhausting and combustible choreography of certainty and doubt, of dervish intelligence and fanatic heart that flamed through his writing. And he warns his brother Theo by saying, everyone will think that I work too fast. Don't believe a word of it. It is not, or he says, is not emotion the sincerity of one's feelings for nature, what attracts us? And sometimes the emotions are so strong that one works without knowing one works, and these strokes come with a continuity and a coherence like words in a speech or a letter, end quote. By the end of August, burning with anticipation, with the anticipation of Gauguin's arrival, Vincent submitted yet another image of sunflowers to, quote, the furnace of creation. This time, the logic of complementaries lost the battle to the extravagance 
of brilliant effect. The whiplashing mistrels of conception and execution further disentangled object from atmosphere, color from context, and image from reality. The result was, quote, a picture all in yellow, yellow flowers on a yellow-green background, and a yellow vase on a yellow-orange table. Vincent pronounced it, admitting that it is, quote, certainly different, and he assigned it a very special role. Like the flowers themselves, which turn to the east every morning to salute the rising sun, Vincent's yellow canvas would greet the bel ami due at the door any day now. The room you or Gauguin will have, he wrote to Theo, merging his dreams of a new brotherhood in the Midi with memories of the last one in Paris, the room you or Gauguin will have will have white walls with a decoration of great yellow sunflowers. And I'm not really sure if if this is the case, but I certainly hope that uh, that biography of Van Gogh won all the awards it possibly could have. I want to check something here. Um, Glenn Gould, that's the name of the pianist whose name I could not remember. And uh, the thanks to an old friend named Jim, who may be out there listening to this, um, he introduced me to Glenn Gould and to his two wildly different versions of Bach's Goldberg variations, the first from the mid-50s and the second one, I believe, from 1980 or so. And... Um, it's funny how these podcasts work. Um, I would have never connected Glenn Gould to Vincent Van Gogh. But now that I imagine Van Gogh uh, talking to the paintings as he executes them and knowing uh, Gould's story, not just of how they had to muffle the muttering that he would do while he played, but also that almost from the beginning of his career, he gave up. Um, gave up touring, playing, playing the playing concerts in front of Carnegie Hall and such like that, and became a sort of recluse and germaphobe. I think himself. Um, it's probably not a bad idea to devote an episode to the life or just the voice. Now that we have, I believe there's a lot of interviews with him of Glenn Gould as well. Um, if anyone out there is interested, they should definitely look him up. There should be a good documentary about him on YouTube or Netflix right now. But in any case, that is where the mind goes. Uh, from Glenn Gould to Vincent Van Gogh and onward with the creativity of these people who have a hard time being in public company. But when they're alone and when they're on fire, they get it done. And so we are lucky to have uh, such wonderful books written about people like this. And I will say it one more time. It is Stephen Nife and Gregory Whitesmith, Vincent Van Gogh, The Life. Go and find this book. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us 
the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.